the you know five key metrics would be ARR growth, you know, sort of year over year, followed by net retention, gross retention, some measure around sales productivity, payback period, and, and magic number, overall burn of the business. I mean, actually, like those combination of like four to five metrics can tell me so much about a business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. I'm your host, Shabam Data, at Shabam on Twitter. If this is your first episode, welcome, and thanks for checking it out. For those returning listeners, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you've subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show on whichever platform you're hearing this now. It would mean so much to me and help spread the stories of these amazing finance leaders we feature on The Backbone. On to the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Amy Wu, former finance leader and operator turned partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. Lightspeed is a full-cycle global venture firm focusing on investments in the enterprise technology and consumer space. Amy has enjoyed being on both sides of the table as an investor and operator, joining Lightspeed in 2019 as an early member of the growth team to lead the reinvestment platform and invest in growth stage consumer and enterprise businesses. As a former operator, what she loves most about investing is getting into the trenches with the CEOs and their teams. Prior to Lightspeed, Amy was an executive for several years, most recently at Discovery Inc., a global media company with 17 TV networks in 220 countries, and at NewsCred, a growth stage marketing company based in New York City, after starting her career at Insight Venture Partners. Amy helped raise over $60 million for NewsCred, was group CFO for four U.S. direct-to-consumer businesses at Discovery, and was involved with Zumba, Drilling Info, and other marketplace and SaaS investments while at Insight. She was a CFO and SVP of Commercial Operations for Discovery Asia, based in Singapore, led the Scripps Network Asia integration efforts, and was a board observer with JD.com while at Insight. And so without further ado, let's hear from Amy Wu, partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. Hey, Amy, thanks for joining me on The Backbone. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, CFOs don't always get the limelight, so it's pretty exciting to be on your podcast. That's awesome. Thanks for making some time. You started your career in tech VC as an associate at Insight Venture Partners before your first operating gig at NewsCred, where you climbed the ranks to SVP of Finance and Operations. From there, you made the leap to the CFO seat at Discovery Inc., where you spent the last two years prior to making the jump back to the venture side as a partner at Lightspeed. So talk to me about your journey into tech and finance and how it all started for you. Sounds good. Yeah. So I... Um, as you mentioned, you know, I started my tech career at Insight Venture Partners, which is a, a large late stage and also, you know, sort of buyout tech investment fund based in New York City. And I started as an associate on the on-site team. And so how, you know, Insight is laid out so that it's, there's an investment team and then there's an on-site team that's really, um, that does a lot of uh, work with the portfolio companies, but also a lot of diligence. And, uh, you know, I, I spent two and a half years there beginning my career and just, I mean, just so much. It's just a wonderful full learning environment as a junior person, like whether you're on the investment team or on the onsite team, because you have so much responsibility and exposure. It's 
it's a very huge part of the DNA of the fund. Um, and so I, you know, when I was there, I executed on a couple of deals a month and then, you know, and doing that, got to work with most of the partners at Insight, um, you know, particularly did a lot of work for Devin Parekh and also Jeff Lieberman, who are both really great investors. Um, and then I reported to Hillary Gosher, who's who runs Onsite. And, you know, today I think it's, you know, over 100 people. And and she was just wonderful. One of the smartest mentors and bosses I've had, you know, she really trusted me to essentially help some of the portfolio companies run M&A, you know, help them set up KPIs. And this is a time when um, first a lot of SaaS and consumer tech companies, the KPIs weren't as standard as they are now. And so, you know, we sort of figured it out with them for the first time in a, in a lot of cases. And for, for Devin... Um, I helped him cover India and China investments and, uh, you know, did things like run diligence for JD.com for him, which we invested in and just really amazing experience. Um, so after Insight, um, I briefly was at IA Ventures, which is a really successful early stage fund based in New York. There, you know, it was a really great team. I actually discovered that early stage investing is, you know, not a great fit for me. And so, you know, considered going back to Insight, but actually decided to join one of the portfolio companies at the time, NewsCred. Um, and uh, and I spent the next four years there working for Shafqat Islam, the founder CEO, and uh, and did you know a lot of, at, at, at NewsCred. I was head of finance and operations and ran everything from, you know, finance, fundraising, FP&A, sort of ops, IT, and even HR briefly, you know, as, as executives do at startups, um, you know, I raised over 60 million of, of equity and debt for the company. And after about four years, I was, um, you know, ready to move on, learn something else. And so I actually gave Shaf, I think, six to nine months notice and, uh, and, decided, and then ended actually doing something quite different. So I was a group CFO at, um, at Discovery, which is a, you know, $12 billion top line, like revenue global media business. Um, Discovery owns 17 television networks and also global sports portfolio, like Eurosport. And, uh, I just had an amazing opportunity to work for the global CFO, Gunnar Wiedenfeld. Um, and as this group CFO for the a- uh, Asia Pacific business, you know, I moved to Singapore and, uh, and managed uh, a portfolio in, you know, over 10 different countries and also helped, um, lead integrations for our scripts acquisition, um, out there. And then was moved back to New York where I was the group CFO for the direct to consumer and sports business, which is about seven portfolio businesses. And, uh, and I was there when, when Lightspeed Ventures recruited me over, um, to join as an investment partner on the growth team, uh, about six months ago and I moved to San Francisco. Great overview. And so now that you're over at Lightspeed, Tell me about your focus area at the fund. Yeah, sure. Um, a little bit more about Lightspeed. So, so we are a full lifecycle VC fund. Uh, the fund has about $9 billion under management. And we have investors on the ground based in the U.S. We're, we're actually all based in the Bay Area. Uh, but then also India, China, Israel, and, and our new partner just joined um, based in London. So covering Europe. And for... Um, and a little bit more about Lightspeed. For the first couple of decades, actually, Lightspeed was uh, was primarily known as an early stage fund, and so we were first investors in in Snapchat, and then a number of very successful B two B companies like Zscaler, AppDynamics, Rubrik, and a few others. And actually, last year was when our growth team was um, was first founded. Um, you know, my my ex Insight colleague. Um, Brad Tuig and also Will Kohler Coley, the team. And, uh, and then I'm the third investment partner on the growth team focusing on, um, and I do both B2B and also B2C growth deals in US, India, and China. And, uh, at Lightspace, we have, um, we've got a $1.4 billion 
core growth fund and also a similarly sized opportunity fund. Um, and, uh, and here, you know, we write checks between 20, 25 to like $150 million. And, uh, and so, um, you know, a couple of deals that I've done so far is so the first deal I did was leading the series E, e round for ThoughtSpot, which is $250 million round. They are a, uh, US based, um, BI and analytics company. And, uh, second deal I, you know, done so far is, uh, leading the series B for OK Credit. Um, that was a co-investment with our Lightspeed India team. And, uh, and this is a sort of app based accounting ledger for small retailers and, in India, super fast growth company. Very exciting. Wow. Needless to say, you've been pretty busy even in the first six months here at Lightspeed. So, you know, not many CFOs go on to become partners at venture funds. How has your experience as an operator, particularly in the finance function, helped you become a better investor now that you're on the other side? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, um, it's definitely true. Like in growth investor world, there are way fewer operators than there are in, I would say, early investor world. And uh, and certainly even amongst operators, very few CFOs. Um, I think there's some, ex- some reasons for that. Um, you know, you don't see a lot of people with operating, you know, investors with operating experience, because frankly, in order to get recruited into a fund, they really are looking at investment track record, right? And so if you actually have a lot of years of operating experience, you could actually be an incredible board member, but you don't have a lot of investment track record. And so I think that kind of um, issue, you know, leads to not a lot of operators in that seat. But, you know, I think Lightspeed honestly just thinks about the world differently and really value the perspective of operators, which is, you know, one of the huge reasons why I joined. And, um, and I think, you know, as an investor now, there are a couple of ways that I think, you know, being a CFO before and for, and for a number of years has really helped me and kind of, uh, helped me differentiate like as a, a board member and investor. And so first was, um, uh, first is, you know, you kind of, you, if, if you've operated and you've been in an executive for a number of years, you know what, excellence looks like uh, as an operator and also specifically what finance um, excellence looks like. And, and, you know, I can start reading between the lines, like, for example, like if a CFO talks about, you know, issues that they're having with a CRO or how they're, let's say, setting up a comp plan, it actually gives me some insights on the strengths and weaknesses of a team that I think I would have a lot less insight into if I hadn't actually lived in a day in day out for years. And, uh, and then number two is I think, you know, at least in growth investing, it actually helps to to know what a finance team and a team look, needs to look like post IPO as a publicly traded company. And so, one of the ways that I I, I can add value is actually advising a company around IPO preparation. Um, and that might be very different from another from other board members, let's say, that can advise on more product development or just as you know, general growth investors. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely a lot of insight that you can bring to your portfolio companies as their VCs. I want to switch gears now and dive into your experience uh, at, at fundraising. So we've talked to many guests on this show about raising capital. You helped raise over $60 million for NewsCred, and now you're investing millions for Lightspeed. Talk to me about your lessons learned while raising capital and what you do differently. And secondly, when you evaluate a company for investment, what are things that you're looking for that you wish you as a finance leader knew? Well, yeah, I could talk about this for hours. I mean, raising capital, it's like, you know, if you're at a company or frankly, if you're at a fund, it's always be raising. So this is a big topic of conversation. 
Uh, I think at lights, uh, sorry, at NewsCred first. Um, so definitely my experience at Insight helped me raise money for, for NewsCred because you really get into the mind of an investor, which is very different a lot of times than the mind of, you know, the CEO and, and CFO if they haven't had a lot of experience raising money. Like first a note on just the fundraising experience. I mean, the number one most important thing is the CEO needs to be a great storyteller. I mean, this is assuming, you know, you have your, the metrics actually look really good. And, um, and then number two is like, and the, the CFO can really help run, um, can do a lot to help run a clean process. And one of the, I think the one of the biggest lessons I've learned um, over the years on both sides of the table is you really need to let your board help you raise money. It saves you a lot of time and that really helps with the running the clean process. You know, a, a great board um, and your lead investors, you know, over uh, multiple rounds, they can continue to raise insider rounds, right? Which, which actually gets, um, which actually, you know, depresses uh, fundraising time and can get it done really, really quickly. Um, and they can also coordinate and introduce you and and kind of back channel and manage like new investors into a round. And one of the things that, to think about is the fact that investors actually have as long-term relationships with each other as they do with founders. And so when you're a CFO, you know, just leverage those relationships. It can save you and your CEO a lot of time. Um, and then I think your second question was, just, you know, what are some things I'm looking at now as an investor that I wish I knew as a finance leader? So, I mean, so today, yeah, when I look at companies today, um, and these are like, you know, all larger growth funds, like we use a ton of data. So I use so much benchmarking data and that's both internally, you know, amongst our portfolio companies, like knowing what excellent data, uh, what excellent benchmarking looks like. And also externally, you know, I have access to private comps, also public comps. I talk to experts and equity analysts on a weekly basis. And I think, you know, when I was a finance leader, there's, um, you know, if you're lucky, then every single metric you have is world class. But I would say like 99% of the time, like there are definitely a number of metrics that just aren't. And um, when you're on the executive team, you sometimes start making excuses for like why they might not be best in class or you also recut the data to make yourself like feel better about, um, you know, different segments and that, you know, maybe the data is trending well. But I think like now, if I were a CFO again, raising money, I would honestly make fewer of those uh, well-intentioned excuses. And, and in area in really critical areas, I would say like, let's say gross retention for a SaaS mm -hmm. company. Like if I, if that, if that starts to not be best in class, then I would say like, it needs to be all hands on deck. Like, how do we fix this? It's, it's actually like something we need to prioritize over a lot of other things. And I think now, you know, as an investor, like seeing a lot of these exits uh, with all these data points, I can honestly say that, you know, most multi-billion dollar SaaS companies are just not built off of gross retention, for example, that's like under 90%. And so there's some metrics that just needs to be world class. And I think that like I would be a lot more attentive to as a finance leader today. Right. And so just to maybe help our, our listeners here and, and uh, putting, I, I keep juggling back and forth between your investor hat and your operating hat. This is amazing because we haven't had a guest who's <laughs> been able to, you know, wear both of these hats like you have. So I, I keep jumping around. No problem. So now putting back on your operating hat, while at Discovery, you were the group CFO of four U.S. direct-to-consumer mm -hmm. businesses. What are some of the unique metrics and KPIs that are relevant for D2C businesses versus SaaS businesses? 
Oh, yeah. Um, good question. And um, we were actually a group. So we were a portfolio of seven businesses. And I learned a lot about managing KPIs when I was at Discovery because I was lucky to have to really be under the tutelage of uh, our group CEO, Peter Farisee, who was a longtime executive at Amazon when he joined us um, to run the portfolio of direct-to-consumer at um, Discovery and, and essentially came in. And in our first meeting, Peter said to me, you know, I'm going to implement, I want you to help implement the WBR system here and you have a month to do it. And after about, you know, like next month, I want you to sit down with all the GMs and let's go through the review for the first time. And so what the WBRs are is weekly business reviews. And it's a very famous or infamous, depending on whether you like it or not, um, system that's run at Amazon where um, every single week or at the time, yeah, Discovery, we're doing every other week because, you know, it was very manual putting this together for each of the businesses. You know, we were tracking at Discovery and we had there's seven businesses in the portfolio, about 50 KPIs like consistently week in, week out. And for direct-to-consumer businesses, you know, these are daily or weekly run businesses. And so tracking these KPIs consistently, like, and we were looking at historicals versus actuals versus forecasts on a weekly business. It was basis. It was maybe the most rigorous way I've ever tracked KPIs. And for for D2C businesses, we were looking at, you know, um, pretty standard things like net revenue. We have looking at total subscriber, subscriber growth. We looked at, you know, monthly churn, cost of customer acquisition and CAC. So like lifetime revenue, lifetime value over CAC, LTV CAC ratios. And then for businesses that we were running that had advertising revenue, we were looking at ARPU and CPMs. And then consistently through product metrics like app ratings, upload speed, et cetera. Um, so, uh, and then, um, you know, DAU, daily average, um, you know, daily active users, and then comparing to monthly active users, these are all very standard KPIs for direct-to-consumer businesses that we were tracking. And uh, and being able to track them consistently across the portfolio means that we could actually see where each of the businesses were um, managing, you know, what their strengths and weaknesses were, which areas, and really be able to benchmark them. And it was a very, very powerful tool to manage a portfolio and also the businesses day in, day out, uh, and totally aligned, you know, the GMs and their management teams with the group CEO, CEO and myself. Right. Got it. And, and as you said, that sounds like a very rigorous process in and of itself. I'm curious to the merits or the benefits of doing a weekly business review, like a WBR, like you said, versus a monthly or or quarterly. Obviously, um, the cadence. You know, if if you do it weekly, do you see a lot of differences week to week, or um, is it looking at it just to make sure that it's all trending in, in the right way and there are no red flags and you don't end up waiting the whole month to find it? Yeah, it's a good question. There's definitely such a thing as, you know, analysis, analysis paralysis. And uh, I would say that, you know, some businesses are just meant to be tracked month, uh, quarterly. And so most B2B, you know, SaaS companies in which, You've so like the for example the quotas for the sales reps are are set on a quarterly or maybe even a biannual basis. It really doesn't make sense to track weekly or necessarily monthly because you're not really seeing like you know differences in the business. Um, and quarterly is really the right uh, time frame to track it. Now for consumer businesses, uh, direct to consumer subscription, gaming businesses, these are businesses that 
sort of rise and fall on a daily basis. And, um, and so I would say, you know, gaming businesses are tracked on a daily basis. You know, for our direct consumer businesses, we were tracking them weekly and biweekly. And that was the right cadence because so much changes, you know, from consumers, like in that time frame, you're shipping product out on a weekly basis, right? Rather than like on a quarterly cycle. And so it really depends on the cycles of your business, how fast you're shipping product, how fast you can collect consumer feedback is, um, is how you should decide what, at what cadence um, to track your business. And there's also the pragmatic question of how much, is too much that is actually crippling the productivity of the business. And so if you're not set up, if your system's not set up to, to actually like automatically just download KPIs to be going through on this, in this, in this review, then you could actually take like, you know, let's say three days to manually, uh, you know, put, actually collect all this data and then present it. And then, you know, you really don't have enough time to actually execute on the business strategically. Mm -hmm. So that's also really important consideration yeah it's like once your week's business review is ready it's already time for the next week <laughs> exactly yeah and, and so then if you compare and contrast that to uh, i guess more traditional SaaS businesses um, which are more predictable and and do you think that that predictability affords you the ability to um, do them at a monthly cadence or a quarterly cadence because most like SaaS pricing models are not priced weekly and so there would be less fluctuations week to week versus month to month. A lot of our uh, SaaS companies in our portfolio, they, you know, we have quarterly board meetings and that's really good time for the company to just pull together all of their KPIs quarterly. And those are, you know, those are really, again, very standard KPIs, uh, you know, looking at LCV, payback period, CAC, you look at gross retention, net retention, you know, just ARR growth, new bookings versus, you know, versus renewals. Um, you know, these are all really standard. Um, and uh, as a board member, you know, we look at them on a quarterly basis. The company probably has more specific, let's say, product goals um, and, you know, account renewal goals and targets that are tracking on a monthly basis, but that's more, you know, at a company specific preference. Right. And it, you touched on this briefly, but you said, you know, um, sometimes you can get analysis by paralysis um, by, you know, just continuing to, to look at metrics after metrics, um, especially now as an investor, what are like the, when you, when you look at a company, um, are there like, uh, I don't know, three or five or maybe one or two, metrics that you're always looking for and then everything else is like oh it's like you're just doing a gut check but like you really need to see this like two or three key metrics yeah definitely i mean because you know as investors particularly growth investors we just look at such high volumes of businesses you know let's say for staff businesses the you know five key metrics would be let's say ARR growth, you know, sort of year over year, um, followed by net retention, gross retention, then, you know, some measure around sales productivity. So, you know, I like to look at uh, payback period and, and, and magic number. Um, and then just overall burn of the business. I mean, actually, like those combination of like four to five metrics can tell me so much about a business, um, you know, and consumer businesses, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different types of consumer businesses. There's, you know, direct to consumer, 
uh, physical good, good businesses. There's, uh, there's marketplace businesses, which tend to be more complex. You know, there's dynamics on the supply versus the demand side. There's gaming businesses. You know, there's a lot more. So for each of those categories, we have, let's say four to five metrics that we'll look at very consistently. Um, I'll just give you an example, like for a direct to consumer physical good business, let's say for makeup, you know, we'll look at, um, definitely top line growth of the business. Um, you know, it will look at, uh, we'll do a cohort analysis. So we'll look at retention cohorts and just sort of like, you know, cumulative lifetime value by cohort and really look at how these cohorts are trending. And so there's sort of, uh, you know, you'll see for retention curves, you'll see these asymptotes. And we actually look at, you know, sort of month three, six, nine, 12, like retention rates, for example, across different businesses to understand how sticky a product is. Um, and then, and then we'll consistently look at contribution margin because, you know, companies may track gross margins very differently. But if you actually look at contribution margin, then you can actually look at companies, apples to apples and public companies versus private companies, apples to apples. And so those will be examples of some of the metrics we'll look at across the board. And that makes a lot of sense. And, and so uh, just to uh, double click on that particular example, um, when you're looking at retention of, uh, I guess, are you looking at um, like repeat? order rates is that what is driving the retention of like a call it a d2c makeup brand yeah so really common way of looking at retention is let's say you know you acquire a whole cohort of consumers and that's sort of month zero the next month so month one what percentage of those consumers actually bought another item right or um and you can look at it from an absolute basis or you can look at it from a dollar basis let's say the first cohort month zero of customers bought a thousand dollars worth of merchandise now the second month that group of customers you know bought a hundred dollars or fifty dollars that's how you can start like you know mapping out those retention curves you can add a dollar basis or in it and transaction gotcha Awesome. Well, I mean, I I can geek out about these metrics for, <laughs> Me but I think for the the, the interest of, of time, uh, one last question here before we jump into our quick fire round, and that is, mm-hmm. in your opinion, what is the biggest misconception about the finance function within a technology company? Oh, uh, let's see. Well, um, you know, this is less of a misconception now, but for the longest time, the fine, you know, us folks in finance were seen as kind of quote unquote bean counters. And, uh, and I do think most companies, certainly most tech companies don't think of the finance function that way anymore. And there is a rise of, you know, truly strategic CFOs that can be COOs or CEOs, like an example of which is, you know, for example, Artie Minson, who was CFO of WeWork is now the co-CEO of WeWork. Um, and, you know, many other examples, um, that's just a recent on. Um, and I think, uh, but I do think it's still a, a, a fact that a CEO who thinks too narrowly about the finance function may also end up hiring a team that is more about governance and risk management than about strategic strategic finance and growth. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I would kind of turn around and say, you know, when a CEO is hiring a CFO, it's important to hire somebody with with some experience because there are sort of hard skills and, and technical expertise that you need. However, they really should have, um, you know, strategic and growth oriented mindset that a CFO can really actually do, can step into your CEO or president role someday. And that's where you can really get the biggest leverage. As you assess maybe CFO candidates, what are some things that you could look out for or um, be cognizant of from an entrepreneur or from a founder's perspective, a CEO's perspective when hiring that CFO 
to um, determine if they're more of a you know governance or like uh, that type of CFO mindset versus a strategic finance CFO mindset, and is there a time when you need one versus the other? Yeah, well, CFO roles in early stage, you know, for example, when I the kind of work that I was doing at NewsCred is very different than the kind of work you do as a public company CFO. Um, I mean, the, there's similarities. So, you know, the similarity is you're, you know, if the more strategic you are, I think the the better, uh, like the better results and the more, um, I would say, like, the more you can really be a partner to your CEO. And, um, and in terms of thinking about the business, like I was thinking, I always, I always try to think about the business as like another executive, like, you know, as, as like, the CEO would think about his business you know, at NewsCred or at, at Discovery. Um, now, like in a later stage company and a company that's about to go public or, or going public in a couple of years, it it is very important that the CFO knows what it, what that team uh, looks like and some of the processes of, of a publicly co- uh, traded company, whether they have personally experienced it or not, right? And so, you know, I think we're we're very much, um, you know, we're a huge proponent of of hiring of you know promoting from within. And so, it, the, the CFO doesn't necessarily have to have public company experience, but they certainly need to know what it looks like, whether they have worked for somebody and have learned it from somebody else, or have talked to enough bankers and an external community that they they really know what they're getting into. Because that the I think the the governance, um, the regulatory uh, complexity, um, you know, sort of managing manage, managing sort of like public uh, quarterly earnings, the, that is like very different than than necessarily sort of like the operational day to day nitty gritty sort of like execution that an earlier stage CFO might have to do. So, for example, like knowing how to, how and when to implement NetSuite or um, um, or you know, hiring your your next accounting um, person on the team, or you know, negotiating a lease with a broker is a lot more like cross functional, like broad mm-hmm. tasks versus you know, in, in a much later stage company, like you really need to know how to raise, let's say, a very late round of financing, or you need to understand how to talk, how to. Uh, communicate a script that public investors can really understand, or how do you actually, you know, m- uh, manage through SOX rules, regulations, or you know, navigate tricky regulatory rules, um, I- issues in like APAC, for example. So I think, like, you know, like when I'm interviewing, when interviewing a CFO, like if they don't have the direct experience, at least being able to talk to what needs to be done and being able to talk to that, um, you know, strategically uh, is very important. That makes a lot of sense. So there, there isn't one kind of silver bullet for every uh, occasion and situation. Obviously um, the, the situation and the circumstance determines what you're looking for and uh, the kinds of skill sets mm-hmm. that CFO brings. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, what I'd love to do now is jump into our quick fire round. And, and the way this works is I'll ask you a couple of questions. You have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How's that sound? Sounds great. All right. So what is your go-to online resource for all things startup finance or growth finance related? Ooh, okay. My my go-to resource is actually offline. So I go to my CFO network for all my finance related questions for a lot of my CF, uh, finance related questions so my CFO friends and also you know in New York there's a great CFO forum and I, I tend you know I tend to find just a quick you know email is, is the fastest way to get you know any 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 information that I need finance related nice uh, what's your favorite productivity 
I am old school on this as well. Let's see, my productivity hack is actually using a physical notebook for notes. Um, every single day, you know, I always maintain a morning bowl, uh, a to-do list every single day. And I get a lot of satisfaction from crossing each of those off. And I find that it really helps like manage my thoughts. And I always reflect back and, and read my notes um, in order to figure out, you know, what I really need to get done tomorrow and the rest of the week. What's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing? Ooh, um, I. I don't leave the office without checking my calendar the next day to make sure that I feel prepared for all my meetings. Yeah, definitely. I've heard that one before as well. What's um, one tech jargon that makes you cringe? Uh, let's see. It probably is the phrase double click, uh, which I don't know whether this is a favorite phrase uh, in the Bay Area or now it's sort of permeated throughout, you know, tech industries everywhere, tech communities everywhere. But and I find myself using this all the time um, as well. But, you know, it makes me yeah. feel very nerdy. <laughs> and, but uh, but it's, it's great. Impressive. Yeah, I was I was just going to admit that I've definitely used the phrase double click in this very podcast itself. So <laughs> I, oh, I, I use the phrase probably like five times a day. <laughs> it's a problem. Yeah. And lastly, what's the best advice you've received so far in your career? Uh, it's got to be, you know what, I um, it's got to be to work to live. Uh, don't live to work. You know, I am a huge advocate of work-life balance in every place that I go. And, uh, and you know, I just believe that when you have that balance, you are actually more, not less productive at work. You produce your best work and you're also just happier person in general. And that's awesome. And on that note, uh, I think we'll, we'll end the podcast here. Uh, well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on The Backbone and chatting about uh, not only your uh, VC and investor uh, experience, but also your uh, operating experience uh, spending time in that world. And it's really been a pleasure um, picking your brain on both the operator perspective as well as the investor perspective as a VC. Uh, so I really appreciate your time and thanks again for coming on the backbone. Thanks so much for having me on. Really enjoyed it. And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. What an awesome discussion with Amy Wu former CFO turned partner at Lightspeed. Check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. Thank you for listening all the way through and joining me on this journey inside finance at a tech company. Until next time, take care.